Yeah, I already talked for three hours. I don't know if that's a record or not. It doesn't matter. There's no there's no awards. There's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing here. Uh, there's nothing to get, nothing to receive. Uh, but I, I need to talk a little more. This is all I do anymore. It's all I have time for. You know, I was talking about the way this programming kind of gets into your brain. And I used the example the other day of the dictionary.com crossword puzzle, which I do every night. And how some of them, you can tell what the author's programming is because they're user submitted. And obviously dictionary.com has to approve them. And even though it's not every one, I mentioned that a high number of them, you can tell that person's political slant from the hints that they give you. And particularly the gender stuff comes up a lot. Pronoun, gender, like based on how small of a percentage that's supposed to affect, like based on like the limited amount of impact that that should in theory have, like even if that stuff was just fully ingrained into our society to accommodate certain people, it shouldn't come up that much just because that's just one thing in a sea of other things that somebody could choose for a crossword puzzle, for example. Like out of all of the truly millions of ideas that you could try to convey, because not just with the words, because <laughs> since doing these online crossword puzzles, I've started to realize the art of it where, yeah, you can just choose words. I mean, you can choose any word you want as long as you can fit it together. As long as you can you can fit it into a crossword puzzle, you can choose any word you want. And given how many different meanings a word has and how many different uses it has, you could come up with really any hint to communicate that word. And it doesn't have to be like a lot of hints are really bad. Like sometimes I read them and I'm like even as a riddle that's not very clever or obvious. Like it's not enough to really give you a good hint. Uh, but there is an art to it where it's like, oh yeah, like coming up with a good hint that doesn't reveal too much, but isn't too hard or too out there. You know, being able to do that and like keep the game fun and keep it difficult, it's really an art. But it just, the point I was getting at is just like, you have so many options. Like you could truly pull from anything in the world, any kind of trivia, any kind of reference. But the number of these that reference political issues, like the number of these that have a clear political slant to them, which sounds insane. Like I recognize that this makes me sound insane to say like, oh my God, you know, because people used to make fun of like anyone who says, oh, the liberal media. Oh, you're going to complain about the liberal media again? You know, uh, all Republicans do is complain about the liberal media. You know, people would, they made it out, they, they tried to make conservatives out to be mentally ill or paranoid conspiracy freaks for thinking that a majority of the news has a, at least a Democrat, a Democrat slant, if not like a full leftist bend, what we call a full leftist bend. You know, they, they would make conservatives out to be crazy for that. And, you know, here we are now in 2022, where I'm doing multiple podcasts. I mean, this isn't just one. I've mentioned this like, five, like <laughs> I mentioned this at least three times. I wouldn't be surprised if I've mentioned it five times, but it, it's, it stands out to me. Like it, it's, 
I use this as an example because I keep seeing it. Like, and it doesn't make me mad. Like, I still enjoy doing the crossword puzzles, but I've just noticed it. And I realize I sound like a complete freaking maniac sitting here talking into a phone saying, oh my God, the dictionary.com crossword puzzle has a liberal bias. But to me, it's an example of how it's like mold or something where everything gets infected. Nothing, nothing is exempt. Because you'd think with like the sheer number of user-submitted crossword puzzles they get, you know, the, the company has to approve them, which tells me dictionary.com is deliberately approving. Like, I, I, there can't be that many people who frame their crossword puzzles this way. Like, it has to be a combination of, one, they're getting a lot of submissions like this. Two, the dictionary.com company must be deliberately approving ones like this. But it's really, it's almost every night. It's actually rare that one doesn't kind of have that going on. And I don't, I don't get mad at it. I'm just like, oh yeah, this is how far it goes. It's to the point where you can't even do a crossword puzzle without seeing it. And it'd be one thing if these were ideas that had been common for the last 20 years, 10 years. Like ideas that might have been controversial at first, but it kind of worked their way in. And people had kind of gotten comfortable with them. They stood the test of time. But what gets me about this is it's brand new stuff. Like the hints make reference and like in some of the words they choose make explicit reference to very new beliefs, very new shards of political ideology. Got to sound fancy here. Given I'm, I'm ranting about the liberal bias of dictionary.com's crossword puzzles, I have to get a little fancy at times. Um, but, uh, you know, I was talking in, uh, I don't, I don't mean to go on about crossword puzzles again, but I, I was talking about the programming in that three hour episode earlier tonight. I mentioned how, like, even if you're resistant to this stuff, it still creeps into your programming. And the example I gave earlier was I was doing some writing about the mafia about a year ago. And it was the first time in a long time, like I've sat down and was like, not just doing writing, but like, I'm going to do, I'm going to write continuously for days. Like I'm going to really try to get a lot of writing done. And what was crazy though, is like sitting there in that like writer's headspace, what we call a writer's headspace. Uh, like I was writing about these guys, like coming here from Sicily and for a split second, I paused and I didn't think to, to like write in gender neutral language or to get into the weird, like, they they may have, these men came over, but we don't know how they actually identified. Like, I, like I, I kind of, it came to my head in more of a mocking way, but the fact that it came to my head at all is crazy. Like, the fact that, like, I didn't, it didn't come to my head to go, oh, maybe I should write this, maybe I should do this writing about the history of the mafia in gender neutral inclusive language like that that idea didn't even come close to my brain what came to my brain was oh i could see somebody getting mad at me for writing and using just you know i, I could see where like i could see where somebody might get mad at me for writing about the mafia the way we've always written about human beings with none of this new shit none of this twist on what makes people what they are But the fact that I, I even thought like, oh, somebody's somebody could get mad at me for writing this way. 
because the new writing style guide tells you to write in, in this this inclusive way, no matter what you're dealing with. That's that's kind of the joke behind that. It's like even writing about the mafia, somebody could get mad at you for not using the current political style guide. But the reason that, I mean, that's a joke, but the reason it's not much of a joke is right after I did that episode, I saw this article and it's about how there's a new movement, and this might be fringe, but this, this is real, you know, this might be fringe, but it's still like, this is the level that we're on. And so right after I was talking about that, like, oh, they'd expect me to write about the, the history of the mafia in gender neutral, inclusive terms now. Then I see this article that says like, there's a push in, among academic anthropologists to no longer identify human remains as male or female. They feel that it's you know morally wrong to misgender or assume a gender of a skeleton, you know, because obviously they can tell. Obviously, scientists can tell whether a skeleton was a man or a woman. But there's a push um, in anthropology, and, and again, this might be very fringe. But all of these things were fringe just a few years ago. Everything that people are upset about was fringe just a few years ago, which shows you how quickly it can build, how quickly it can just take over. And so just take a step back. Like what's amazing is nobody ever takes a step back. And like you take a step back from this article and you think that like human beings are upset about how a skeleton is referred to. Skeletons are amazing. Like, it's insane to me that we leave behind bones that can last forever, basically. Like, that still doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, bones break so easily. They're so brittle. But yet we leave them behind and they're this major symbol. And the thing is, like, nobody has an agenda when they refer to a skeleton as male or female. I don't even mean to, I don't even mean to get in, into the logic of it. There's no point in getting into the logic. I don't I try not to do that. But just for the sake of talking about skeletons and bones, I'm kind of freaked out now thinking about it. Like I'm kind of freaking myself out thinking about how we leave bones behind and they just stay there. Like, yeah, over time, I guess they, you know, wither away. But still, like we're finding bones from forever ago, truly forever ago, and they're still bones. And we identify with them and we put them on display it's one of the symbols we use most. Is a skull. I step on a dog toy, but it's one of the symbols we use most. But just the idea that, like, just like the crossword puzzle being like this, because that's basically what I'm saying. Like the crossword puzzle, you get this taste. Like, like when you're doing a crossword puzzle, there's a good chance on any given night that it has the same taste that this what I'm reading now does. That there's a movement. I mean, just I'll read the quote. You might know the argument that the archaeologists who find your bones one day will assign you the same gender, gender as you had at birth. So regardless of whether you transition, you can't escape your assigned sex, tweeted Canadian master's degree candidate Emma Palladino last week. I mean, this could even be a parody article for all I know. Yeah, this might this could even be like The Onion or something. 
I don't even know. See, that's a thing. That's that's the crazy thing. Is like I'm like maybe I'm just like I'm basically a baby boomer now, and I'm just reading like on onion style parody articles and being like, can you believe this? But the difference is like it's it's one of those things where you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference. No, this is a real this is a real site. I'm just gonna do one more lifeline to make sure because I I really. I don't mind being that guy who's reading parody articles thinking they're real. Okay, no, this this site seems to be real. It might be slanted or something, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, and here's the thing. It's like, it's 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 they basically wrote an article that could very well... The entire basis for the article could be this one master's student or whatever that person is who said this online, but that's how easily this shit takes off. All of this stuff was that way. That's the wild thing is that all these things, and, and honestly, I don't give a shit what they do with the skeletons. Like it makes no difference whether you call a skeleton a man or a woman. So it's like, I don't even have an opinion on this. Like if you told me tomorrow that, oh yeah, we're no longer classifying skeletons as male or female, I'd just be like, that's fine. That really, that doesn't change my life at all. There's still bones to me, right? But uh, the problem is the reason why. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the, that's the thing. It's, it's the it's the intention behind the idea. Like if we just did that for the hell of it, because we were like, why the hell are we classifying bones? Like why the hell are we thinking so much about bones anyway? These are dead people. Like I understand, you know, gender and sex when it comes to uh, health and science, you know, and medicine. But like for bones, it's like we don't need to try to do anything to bring to keep them alive. They're dead, so it doesn't really make any difference to us beyond being like, "Yep, this this man had this bone density, and this woman had uh, this." You know, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. And and the person, the, the anthropologists are still going to know exactly what they they're looking at. That's the funny. That's the funny part about like this crazy control over language. It's what I've always said. See, I'm doing the Trump spell again. It's what I've always said. It's what I've always said about uh, language. No, it's what I've always said about language, which is like, you can get rid of a word, but if there was something that created that word, you can't get rid of that. Like slurs are a good example. Like if you ban a slur, but that slur is a response to something. You can say that slur is unfair, it's mean, it's evil, it's hateful. You can say all that, but it's like something still prompted those people to like, some feeling inside of those people, if nothing else, compelled them to come up with a slur. So it's like, you're not changing the thing that led them to use that word, and they can just as well use another word, and they will. Like the power isn't in the word. That's the weird thing. It's like the power isn't in, isn't in the slur. Like I understand the argument that by banning these slurs, these popular slurs, that we're discouraging that overall type of behavior. And I think that's a good argument. Even though I'm not in favor of banning any words, that that to me is one of the better arguments. Like if I if I want to say if I want to steel man the whole thing, as they say the opposite of straw man, I would say that would be one of the stronger arguments that I can't really refute. Like I don't, I can't really refute that as an idea. I don't know how it breaks down. I don't know how you measure that. You know, I don't know how you measure 
like how the banning of the word impacts overall relations between people. Because again, I think like the sentiment was there regardless of the word they used to express it. But I do understand the argument that like by banning the word, we're discouraging the sentiment and that gets to the root of the problem. You know, I can understand that argument for sure. But the thing is like people will recreate something. They'll come up with something else. And a story that's still funny to me this to this day is I had a friend in high school and he went to the Midwest. I can't remember I can't remember where, but I think it was the Midwest to visit family. And it was just a small town and he was going to go to Walmart late at night. Like he was staying with his relatives and he was like, oh, I'm going to run to Walmart and get something. And they were like, oh, you might not want to go there because it's late. And he was like, oh, what's up? And they're like, there's a lot of Canadians there at night. And he was like, Canadians? Because I mean, it wasn't, they, they weren't like by the Canadian border. Like they were in middle America, like landlocked, like, you know, the, just the middle of America. And he, he didn't know what they were talking about. Like, what the fuck? Like Canadians? And then he, he asked them, he's like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, black people. Like they had come up with a code word, Canadians, to refer to black people. So they were telling him, like, don't go to Walmart at night here because that's basically when all the black people are there. But they told him Canadians. But what's funny about that story, like, that they thought he would know that. Like they thought that he would, this dude from the Pacific Northwest would know their code word for black people and it's especially one like canadians because you hear about those old ones where it's like oh it gets awfully dark here at night which I, I think is the same sort of statement but the fact that like canadians would be one you just figure out oh yeah i know i know exactly what you mean oh you mean black people okay yeah i knew that it's just weird not that they were using that as like a, a harsh slur you know, it wasn't like they were necessarily using it in that way. It was just like a sort of a code word. It wasn't like something they were necessarily calling people to their faces. But uh, it's still kind of what I'm talking about, where it's like they couldn't use another word, so they came up with Canadians somewhere. I mean, I I'm just imagining like the guy who came up with that at a bar. And someone was like, that's a, that's a great idea. <laughs> that's... <coughs> But, uh, you know, just anytime you, you block something or you ban something, if there was something that created it, they're just going to come up with something else and it's going to serve the same function. But, um, with, uh, I don't know, we were talking about skeletons and bones. What led me on that? I've got to retrace my steps a little. Uh, I don't know. I'll just I'll go back to it. Like with the the skeleton and the bones, you know, like it'd be one thing if it was just this sort of existential statement that was like, you know, why the heck? Oh, I, I remember what it was. I remember what I forgot. I love that feeling when I remember. What it was was um, <laughs> as I forget it again. Now what what it was was uh, you know, I was talking about how it, even if you ban slurs, it's like you don't ban like what that's in reference to. Like if somebody hates a black person and you ban a slur, 
Like it doesn't change how that person feels or perceives black people. Like I do understand the argument that it like it could discourage the overall sentiment. I totally get that. But it doesn't actually change how they see them. It doesn't actually change why that slur was used in the first place. And so and so with like not giving skeletons a gender identity, like they still know what they're seeing. Like those are just words. And they're not even important to us. Like, it's not important to anybody that that skeleton's a man or a woman. Like, that's not something that somebody is personally attached to or invested in. And so you don't have to be a scientist even. You don't even have to be an archaeologist or an anthropologist or whatever field it is I'm talking about. Like, the average person could probably look at two skeletons lying side by side and know which one is the man and which one is the woman. Even if they were the same height, you could probably figure it out. So, like, you don't change, like, the interaction. You don't change what's taking place. And by banning the words or banning that sort of classification, people are still going to classify them that way. And you could call things whatever you want. Like, if you, if you wanted to change the words man and woman to something else, to get away from the, oh, the horrible history of the words man and woman... But if you wanted to change them to something else, like, let's just say A and B. Let's get really simple. Let's say they started calling men A and women B. Well, people would be upset about that. And to appease them, we're going to go, okay, we're going to call women A and men B. But, uh, you know, even if you did that, it's like people would still look at those. And even if the words man and woman were, weren't even in their lexicon, all they knew was A and B, they're still going to look at them and be like A and B. And they're not going to be personally invested in it. The people who are personally invested, the people who are having weird thoughts about skeletons are the people like this person who is upset that people classify them at all. And their reasoning for doing it isn't good. Because like, like I said, if people wanted to stop classifying the gender of skeletons, I'd be like, okay, that's that's funny. Yeah, I never really thought about how weird we are about dead bodies. That we have to put them in categories. It just shows you how neurotic we are as people. Haha, <laughs> that'd be funny to just not not do anything with them, to not classify them at all. They're just bodies, they're they're skeletons. But no, this is like we have to do it because it's like the skeleton might have felt differently when it was alive, but we don't really know. We don't really know if the skeleton felt differently, but it might have. Like, that skeleton might have inside felt it was a woman. Like, that's the weird shit. And, and I think most people would know that's weird. But the reason why I dignify this, the reason why I'm even mentioning it, is because it's what we've seen play out everywhere. The infection knows no bounds. Like the mold spreads to everything. And it's not unrealistic. Based on what we've seen in the last few years, it's not unrealistic for somebody to push an idea like this. And even if it is just some fringe person with a social media account, these ideas take off. And the reason why they take off is because they fit right in to the, the system they're a part of. Like the language this person's using, the way they're framing it, it snaps perfectly into the rest of the gender dialogue. And that's how they shoehorn these really weird ideas in. It's, it's really interesting to watch. Like if you frame things a certain way and plug the right keywords in, 
any weird idea suddenly can become mainstream or popular or just crucial to civil rights, the civil rights of skeletons. But anything can, can suddenly become all-important. It could be the weirdest idea in the world. And, um, and you see kind of how, like where this goes, you know, um, back when this stuff was first kind of picking up about a decade ago, a girl I knew here brought her dog somewhere and, uh, people, people there were like, Oh, what's your dog's name? Like, is it a boy or a girl? And then she very joking, like she was, she was like a very, she was like a young, very, very liberal girl who was just getting caught up in all this stuff. And she jokingly said, like she very self-awarely said, like, his name is such and such, but he doesn't go by the gender binary. But she said it, it was totally tongue in cheek. Like, yeah, like that's, that was something she had gotten into. And, uh, like she was starting to play around with her identity. Like, like I said, this has been going on here for a while, but she was kind of starting to play around with her whole gender identity, but she still had the self-awareness to joke about the dog's gender identity. But it was interesting that she even thought to make that joke too. And poor girl, like the fact that I remembered that forever and I'm like dissecting it 10 years later. But it stood out to me because, like, it was, like, that stuff was still pretty new to me, even. Like, while, well, like, a lot of this stuff, I remember going back to, like, the mid-2000s, the, the gender identity thing, I really don't remember that taking off until the early 2010s around here. That was when, and, and it, it didn't take off to this extent, but I first remembered really noticing it. Because I went to the Evergreen State College, which needs no introduction, and... There were a lot of lesbians, there were a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of gay people. There were, there were definitely some people who identified as men or women or whatever. But it, it was really uncommon. And there were some butch lesbians and stuff who were definitely kind of going for like a more manly look. But it really, you know, at the Evergreen State College, which now you can't go there without seeing it. You really didn't see it that much. And it was the city and, and that college have always been very welcoming to that stuff. You know, this isn't a place where gay people or trans people have to really worry much. And uh, so it wasn't that it wasn't a welcoming environment to be yourself because you had people doing all kinds of crazy things at that school. Nobody was really restricted, and, and there was already a, like a climate similar to the one we have now in terms of like intersectional uh, inclusivity and all that stuff. But there just wasn't that much of it. But so like I, like I went to college from 2004 to 2008, and people weren't really talking about that as much. And uh, then all of a sudden, in the early 2010s, though, I noticed it just took off. In this area, you started to see more and more of it. It became a part of people's conversations. They were talking about it all the time. I'm talking about it now. But they were talking about it all the time. You were starting to see more people do it. And now this area has reached a point where, like, not kidding, if I go to the grocery store, if I go to the college campus, if I do virtually anything within the city limits of Olympia, there's a really strong chance 
that I will see not just one trans person, but multiple. Like, it's not uncommon for me to go to a grocery store and for there to be, you know, a couple trans people in there, one of them working there, another one shopping. It's, it's a very regular thing. I notice it. I don't think you shouldn't do that. Oh, God. But I notice it. And, I, and I've noticed the increase in it. And so I think a part of this is this programming that's kind of developed where, um, you know, just like the, the people who make these crossword puzzles, you know, there's, there's programming to that. Like, this person is thinking about this stuff all the time. That girl that I knew who, like, made a joke about her dog not falling in the gender binary, she was joking. She was self-aware about it and kind of talked, like, she was kind of saying, oh, like, it was an absurd joke. Like, ima like, imagine if the dog, you know, imagine if we didn't assign genders to our dogs. But she was starting to identify that way herself. Like, it was something, like, she was starting to take on. The fact that she would even think to say that about her dog was a joke. But it was kind of a sign of things to come where, like, now the, that's the level that we're on. Where, like, in 2011 or whatever year that was, 2012, I wouldn't have ever imagined that there would even be a discussion about misgendering skeletons. But here we are, where that's an idea, and that idea can snap perfectly into this movement. If you use the right language and you frame it the right way, no idea is too crazy. The, the animal thing, I would bet you there are people who do that with their animals today. I would bet you there are people who believe in this stuff who, just like that girl joked about 10 years ago, are now doing that in earnest. And they're welcome to, I guess, you know? I, I can't tell them not to. I wouldn't want to tell them not to if they want to see things that way. What's interesting, though, is how serious they take it and how aggressive it is and how they never take a step back and look at it. They don't, they don't take a step back and, like, see themselves from the third person. Because, like, I was thinking about somebody who's in academia, like this woman who proposed... Uh, this idea about skeletons, not, not misgendering skeletons or assigning them. Because what she was saying, what, what her post whatever said was like, that this basically humiliates them because we're digging them up and assigning them a gender they didn't feel inside. Um, but it shows you what happens when someone goes down that path. We're like, one of the issues with academia and... Everything surrounding it, everything influenced by it, is one, like a lot of these people never leave that system. Like that continues to inform how they and their peers talk to each other and how they see the world. But there's never really any moment where they're humbled, where they're humbled in their knowledge. Because you need to be, you need to feel stupid. And you need to know that you feel stupid. And that, I think that goes along with anything you study. And it, I think it plays a big role in any kind of spiritual discipline where if you follow it, and even if it's your own, it doesn't even have to be like a religion or somebody else's ideas. Like even if you just develop your own spiritual discipline, 
you feel stupid all the time. Like you're constantly, you constantly realize just how little you know and how flimsy even your best ideas are. And so it keeps you in check in a way. And it's not like that's the only way to do that. Maybe like some people keep them in, themselves in check better, but like you do kind of keep yourself in check constantly where like just when your ego is blowing up big, something pops it and you feel really low. Not bad about yourself, but you're just like, wow, yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I don't understand. And I think one of the issues with academia is people are stuck in that tunnel. They're stuck in this different world for so long. And it's coupled with this idea that you're smart if you do that. Like when we think about somebody who has their master's degree, we're like, oh, they're smart. And these are people who are proud to be smart. And as I've, I've pointed out before, take a look sometime at how much of the angry dialogue between people involves someone calling someone else stupid or um, finding ways to make themselves out to be smarter. Like a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the arguments that people have between each other is you're stupid because you disagree with me and because you're stupid for disagreeing with me, I'm smart for believing what I believe. And it's framed around intelligence and that, that's a sign of completely average intelligence. Stupid people don't mind being stupid. You know, smart people might mind being smart, but they like it. But it's people of completely average intelligence who are the most insecure. Because they know they're closer to being stupid than they are smart in many cases. But they're not stupid. They're just terrified of it. And so the best way to prove their own intelligence is to call someone else stupid, someone else who disagrees. And so much of the dialogue is framed that way. It's all about proving the other person is stupid. Not wrong. Stupid. That's, that's the way it's all framed. And so that's kind of built into academia too. Like academia is one of those things where if you commit to it, the idea is, oh, you're smart. And we hear smart and we think wise, we think knowledgeable. But it's learned knowledge. And if you spend all your time just acquiring learned knowledge, there's no gnosis it's all just consuming knowledge, consuming data. You start to think like that's, you start to think that almost that's the basis for everything. And uh, then these weird ideas creep in and your academia, it, it, it basically allows you to justify your weird ideas because if, if you have enough resources available and the right credentials you can twist all kinds of information to make all kinds of points and all you need to do is convince the right people or the right institutions that you're right for that to become the way people think and I mean, that's kind of what we've seen happen, where a lot of these ideas that I complain about, you know, came from academia. You know, th that's where they really got their legs, and that's they fanned out from there.
And people get stuck in that world. It's not just an ivory tower thing. It's, I don't know. I, I, what comes to mind is like something festering. Like people fester in academia and they get stuck in that way of thinking. And then this political movement, this social and political movement that's overtaken everything, that then becomes their biggest priority. And everything they do has to promote that in some way. No matter how absurd, silly, or ridiculous, it all has to serve that movement. And getting personally invested in the gender of skeletons and how the people who once inhabited those skeletons once felt inside. Like, that's a deep rabbit hole that led you there. But what's crazy about it is even me, someone who thinks it's it's absurd, understands how it works within their system. Like that does work for them. It might not become big, like it might just stay a very fringe idea. There might not be enough people who care about archaeology, anthropology, and all that. But the fact that I can see that and go, okay, I can see how they made this work within that system they've created. I hate their system, but I understand how you can work this in. I understand how if you're in that academic world where you're studying skeletons and nothing has ever humbled you, nothing has ever made you question your knowledge, and now you're just applying that unchecked knowledge to an agenda, it all makes sense to me. And I, I don't even blame them for doing it. It's just that it's so insane. Like if it was something that would legitimately empower or inspire people to be different, like I could take on a, a means justify the end sort of point of view here and say, well, hey, you know, if doing something like that or making these sorts of decisions truly inspires the people, if this is a net positive, uh, if, if this raises morale in a way that's net positive, okay, let's consider that. But it doesn't seem to do that. It just seems to be people who started on the fringes, who are burrowed deep in the same rabbit hole, being like, how can we make this fit too? How can we force this too? And even though it's forced, it does fit in really easily with everything else they're doing. And that's why nothing really there's no limit. There's no boundary. It's why even doing the crossword puzzle, you get a taste of this. Even the dictionary.com puzzle gives you a taste of this because it's designed to make everything serve its needs. And the programming is getting you to think about it on your own. Like me sitting down to write about the mafia and thinking, oh, somebody would be upset that I, I'm not saying he or she. And he or she is now considered outdated because you're not saying they, you know, whatever it is. The fact that I even think about the fact that somebody else would think that reading it. And that there's somebody else who, when they're writing, they don't think about how somebody else would think it. They simply start writing that way. They simply start talking that way. They become an agent of that stuff. And I think deep down, a lot of people know it feels wrong. I think a lot of them know that there's something not quite right inside when they're doing it. Because few of them seem natural. They always seem like it, it always feels performative. It, do, it never feels sincere. And so I think deep down, they, they don't feel sincere about it. 
But it does come across to me like something like they're having to do this thing that doesn't feel good and probably causes them a certain amount of pain. Because even though they're trying to inflict that pain on other people, like take, for example, like the white, you know, the white people stuff, like what you see among young liberals is snide remarks, bad jokes, and outright animosity to white people from white people from primarily from white people. But it's like, they've already internalized all that themselves. Like they're like, I'm torturing myself with my white guilt. And the fact that you're not makes me want to torture you. And I think that kind of principle applies to a lot of this stuff. I'm having to do this. So you should too. It's kind of a cycle of abuse thing. Like, oh, if I have to write in using this weird new political style guide, if I have to adapt to this and it doesn't feel right, deep down, I don't feel this is real. But if I have to do it, everybody should. And because you're resisting it, I want to force it on you. I want to hurt you. I think that's a part of what's going on. And you can definitely see that with the apologies. I was talking about the apologies earlier. I think when somebody's been forced to apologize, when they've been forced to go through that process, they have a couple different options where they can either be like, shit, that's fucked up. And I wouldn't want anybody else to have to go through that. This trial of public opinion and just the level of just psychic weight that's on you. Just thinking about other people, thinking about you in a bad way. The psychic weight of that. You think one person's mad at you. You could stay up all night thinking about it. You're so you're so distracted by it. You think about thousands or a million people who are really mad at you. I mean, that's crazy. I can't even imagine what that feels like. I truly can't comprehend what that feels like. To know that that many people are talking or thinking about you at any given time. I have no idea. Never want. I never want to feel that. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's some people who go through that ordeal. There's some people who go through this trial of public opinion, and whether they apologize or not, they're like, "Well, that was awful, and I did what I had to do to endure it." But I never want anybody else to have to go through that. Like, I'm going to support people. I'm going to I'm going to fight the system, basically, or at least not contri- not encourage it. But then there's other people who have to do that. There's other people who are publicly humiliated because basically what's going on is people are throwing like psychic rotten they're, they're throwing <laughs> rotten psychic fruit at people and there's some people who get pelted with that rotten psychic fruit and they're like oh god this is awful but they're like nobody else should get should be exempt from this either like because i had to do this i now have to join it I now have to keep feeding it. I now have to serve it. So some people, that's what happens. Like they go through this forced apology, but in doing that, like they still serve the master who who humiliated them and they want to get back in its good graces by putting somebody else in the position they had been in. It's the cycle of abuse. So I think that motivates a lot of this, like not to that extreme, Like not everybody has gone through some sort of public humiliation, but they worry about it. 
They quietly worry about it. Like something I notice, I'll listen to these random comedian podcasts. Like I've never even seen these people do stand up. I don't even really know what they're all about, but just in my downtime, like just to have something on, I'll just throw on some random comedians podcast. Some of them unknown, some of them fairly well known, just varies. But one thing I noticed that like a lot of popular comedians say, and unless they're known for challenging this stuff, what people do who want to kind of stay neutral and like acknowledge some of the weird political and social stuff is like, they'll say something and then they'll go, Oh, can I still say that? And it's a very harmless way of playing around with it. Like I just saw it earlier tonight where I was watching uh, it was a female comedian on this guy's podcast and they were talking about strippers and like she used the word stripper and then she was like, Oh, can I, is are we still allowed to say that one? And, the, you know, it's actually, I mean, I don't know if you are to these people. Like, you, I think you're just supposed to say sex worker about anything like that, maybe. And I shouldn't even know that, but we do. We know that people react to that shit. But point being, like, I notice people who kind of want to remain neutral, like people who don't want to have their careers fucked with. I'm not saying these people are cowards or anything, but people who don't really want to get too close to the fire, but also aren't into it. Cause a lot of comedians aren't like a lot of comedians, you know, aren't into this stuff at all. Like, uh, and th this woman, this comedian, you know, her just being like, Oh, you know, like a stripper. And she was like, Oh, are we still allowed to say that? I I've seen a lot of people make that exact joke. It's sort of like being like, oh yeah, you know, they're they're getting kind of crazy with language. They're getting kind of they're trying to control us. It's like a very soft way of saying like, oh, there's some sort of coercive force telling us what to do. But they do it in a very playful way. And I, I don't blame them for taking that approach. Cuz a lot of people don't want to get sucked into this. And just like it infects crossword puzzles, just like you see it virtually everywhere, people know that it can reach them in an instant. It's like the speed of light. Like in an instant, this thing reaches them and they get sucked into it. And again, like, like things snap into place. Like just like you can take any weird idea and find a way to make it make sense inside of this political agenda. Like you can say, hey, you know, did anybody ever think about how they're mis they might be misgendering skeletons? Did anybody ever think that when these people were walking the earth, they might have had male bones, but they felt like a woman? Should we really disgrace them by misgendering them? Maybe we shouldn't do anything at all. You know, like just like that idea can get traction because they have the right framework and keywords. You can see where like anybody can get pulled into the fire in a similar way. Like they can make anybody fit. Like using the right keywords, once again, using the right framework and keywords, they can make any public figure into an enemy or someone deserving of scorn, regardless of who that person is. They can make anyone fit. And it's all very keyword based. It's all, it's all based around keywords largely. You have to use the right keywords. And that goes for the negative things and the positive things. Like if you're trying to make something happen that you want to happen, like if you're trying to promote an idea, you use the right keywords and it gets in.
if you want to destroy someone's reputation, you use the right keywords and you pull them into the fire. And like I was saying, some people get pulled into the fire and they're like, more people need to get pulled into the fire. If they're going to pull me into the fire, if, it, if the fire is good enough for me, it's good enough for you. You know, you see that attitude like I was talking about. But I mean, the best response seems to be like, oh yeah, they tried to pull me into the fire and I didn't stay in it. They keep trying to pull me back, but now I know how to not, <laughs> now I know how to avoid it or something. You know, that's like kind of the best response is just sort of like, oh yeah, they, they did, they did pull me into the fire, but I did, I got out of it and I just walked away. I think that's about the best thing you can do. But I want to get back to that idea of just the psychic way of knowing that Tons and tons of people are mad at you. I never want to experience that. I hope I never do experience that. But the light reaches you so quickly. And somehow everyone can see. Like you're exposed to everybody. And I think that just crushes people. I know there was a situation. I don't know who. I guess it was Macy Gray. I forgot about her. This is the first time I've heard about Macy Gray in years. Years. But, uh, like, she had made some sort of comment, like, you know, just something challenging some of the gender identity, trans stuff. And then she, of course, got pulled into the fire. And then she retracted it. Like, she gave some half-assed apology. And it's like she cracked. Like, the social consensus cracked her. And it cracks a lot of people. It cracks some people before they're ever even near the fire. That's what's interesting is that's what sort of rules the social life. Like I was talking about how there's people who aren't comfortable around their friends or family for that very reason. Where they self-censor. They fear not just what they say or do now and how that will be interpreted but they fear their past. Like I think about this kid, I went to elementary school with him and he, he was always closer to my, he, like, he was like a friend of a friend. Like I never played with him outside of school, but he had like a dirt bike. He always had cool stuff. I would, I would, I would always hear these stories about kids going over to his house and he had cool things. Like it almost didn't seem real. Like they'd go over to his house and he'd have something cool, like a new dirt bike. He was a really nice kid. Like he wasn't a jerk or anything. He just, he had cool stuff and he loved life. But there was a Halloween party he went to at my friend's house and we were kids. We were like third graders. And he was Michael Jordan. And he wore a Michael Jordan jersey and Chicago Bulls basketball shorts. And he also painted himself from head to toe brown. He was like this little blonde kid. He was like four feet tall. He painted himself head to toe brown. He was Michael Jordan, the most popular athlete at the time, you know, 1994 or whatever year this is. Like Michael Jordan was the biggest thing in the world. And he was obviously a fan. He owned a jersey. He owned a Michael Jordan jersey. And even though we were little kids and this was 1994, he got to the house and we all looked at him and we said, oh my God, are you in blackface? Are you wearing blackface? What are you doing here? I bet you're a racist. And in, in 20 years, 
you're going to vote for Trumpsfeld. Even though we don't know, we don't know about Trumpsfeld yet, you're going to vote for Trumpsfeld. No, <laughs> no, in reality, he, he came, I wasn't even there, I don't think. I saw pictures. The only reason I know about this is I wasn't at the Halloween party. I saw photographs afterward, and I was like taken aback. Not because it was offensive, just because I was like, whoa, this kid painted himself brown. That's a, that's a commitment. It's funny. It was goofy. It was very goofy. But photos of that exist somewhere. I saw them because I wasn't there. But uh, point being, like, if you're that kid, a part of you, he probably never even thinks about it. But a part of you has to worry, like, where are those photos? Even though I was a nine-year-old boy, that could surface. And you'd be expected to say something about it if you were a public figure. Oh, you wore blackface when you were Michael Jordan. It was just a kid being a goofball. Just a kid being like, if I'm going to be Michael Jordan for Halloween, i got to paint myself. But I thought about that the other day. I was like, it's so funny. I remember seeing photographs of that party. It was a Halloween party, and I was at my friend's house just like, you just, that's a thing that was nice back then is like, you just hand somebody a stack of photos or a photo album, and you just be sitting at their house just like looking at these photos from an event sometime earlier could be years it could be months but you just sit there and they'd be like you'd be looking at like every photo that was taken at somebody's halloween party and they'd be pointing things out to you or something but i remember looking through those and i was like oh that's funny he dressed as michael jordan and painted himself brown but you know if that's you you know it's like a part of you has to be like oh god it's not just that you're worrying about how you'll be interpreted or perceived now or in the future it's that, like, a lot of people have random, goofy shit in their past. And it's just, we live in a time where, like, the past is of great concern to people. To the point where we're now worried about skeletons. Like, we're worrying about how skeletons feel. Like, I believe in souls, but I don't believe they're worried about their skeletons anymore. Those souls would be looking down if they if they even perceive our world the way we do anymore. But if those souls have, have any awareness of what people are still doing on earth before I mean, I guess souls inhabit another body or something. I don't know what I don't know what souls do. I don't know what the waiting period is before they inhabit another body and things like that. But it's like if I was a soul, which I am, but if I was a soul beyond this life. I'd be looking down and be like, they're worried about how my my body, how, how my earthly body would feel about how to classify my skeleton. You know, I've talked about this before too. It just shows like a fundamentally different way of thinking because I always kind of laugh when people say like, your father would be rolling in the grave. Your father would be rolling in his grave. Oh, his father would, would hate that he said that. Oh, his father, if he was alive, he, oh my God, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't agree. It's like, he's dead. The last thing he cares, oh, he's rolling in his grave. The last thing he cares about is uh, his son's political opinion. I don't blame people for thinking that way. Especially when it comes to like pride, like, oh, your father would be so proud that you, you graduated from law school. Like, I, that's a nice feeling. But when people use, like, a dead person to try to tell somebody they, they're wrong, 
Oh my God, if your father knew that you had voted for Obama bin Biden, he'd be rolling in his grave. You know, it's just a silly way of thinking. And that skeleton thing is the same thing. We're like worrying how a dead person would feel about something that doesn't matter anymore to them. Not just because they're dead, but just because like these are the events, these are the concerns of the living. Like if you want to make an argument that we should be, we should basically reframe our entire way of talking to accommodate a small percentage of people who feel like they were born in the wrong body, make that argument. Like if you think that's a true major civil rights concern, make that argument. But when you start venturing into dead people, you get in that like, oh my God, the guy who used to be this skeleton is rolling in his grave. That skeleton? Did you see that skeleton that we just unearthed? It just rolled in its grave because you said it was male. We're in that territory now. That's not being concerned with the living. It's not being concerned with, hey, there's a group of people out there and maybe we should do X, Y, and Z to make their lives a little better. That's not that. That's, that's some weird... I mean, it's pathological. You know, it's, it's, that's truly pathological to even think that. And the fact that that sort of thought is common. It's, it's common in academia. And it's, it's the endless pursuit for jewels too because it's, everybody wants to have their unique jewel. Like science could just people, science could just be people proving the same thing over and over again, and I'd be happy. But ego fuels it too. It's not just wanting to discover things that benefit humanity and, and learn more about how how everything works. There's also a lot of ego involved in science because we can't do anything without our egos being involved. We literally can't do anything. Our egos attach themselves to anything and everything. And of course, a field where you assert yourself as a premier thinker, like something that could potentially put you in history books, something that could make your name known forever. Something might be named after you. They might name a planet, a star. They might name an animal after you. They might find a new species of some animal and name it after you. So a field where all that's possible, oh no, there's no egos in that. No, there's massive egos. And so academia is the same way. Like people want to assert themselves. They don't want to write a paper or a book that proves something that somebody else already proved. They don't want to just confirm what other people have done. They want to have their own idea. They want to assert themselves. They want to find some new jewel that nobody else has ever found and they want to hold it up. And when they can't find a, a real jewel, they create these bastard fake jewels and they hold those up and say, look at this. And they're part of a way of thinking. They're part of a system where if you you know, shape that, that fake jewel, that bastard fake jewel, just right, it will fit. You can force it to fit. And you make the entire world then say... Oh, look at that beautiful real jewel. Meanwhile, it's not a real jewel. It's a fake jewel. And most people know it's a fake jewel. And they know that that person just created it because they want they want to assert their identity. They want to assert they want to be able to claim they did something unique. And you see this with political opinions in general. 
and it's not one side. I see it with the right wing a lot, where there's a lot of people on the right who their their point of view, and this is true for Republicans and you know traditional conservatives, where basically what they want to do is uh, it's it's on pretty firm ground. Like they basically stand for the same things they've always stood for. Like they've adapted a little bit. Like I always joke about that interview with Tucker Carlson where he's like, I just want things to go back to 1985. You know, it's funny that like that's his conservatism. Like 1985 is like peak conservatism when conservatives from like 50 years earlier would be like 1985. Things are a liberal hellhole. But Tucker Carlson, that was when you came of age and he liked the world at that time. So to him, like just going back to 1985 would be fine, even though like if you look at it from an absolute perspective, it's not a conservative utopia. Like 1985 America is not a conservative utopia, even with Reagan and stuff. It's like still just the culture and everything. No way is that a conservative utopia. Um, but, you know, aside from aside from the fact that conservatives do kind of adapt and they become more liberal with time, like conservatives do progress in time that said their values may stay pretty consistent but and i'm talking about like the more traditional conservatives and republicans and things like that but you on the on the fringes of the right though you see where there's this it's not about principles it's about coming up with your own thing it's coming up with your own angle it's finding your own jewel so you see that kind of the same thing plays out where somebody's like oh I can't find my own unique jewel. I can't find that jewel that will impress everybody. So instead of just like going along with the program, I'm going to create my own bastard fake jewel. So the same thing plays out. And you can see that this like kind of one-upsmanship and this competition takes place where people want to have the most unique take on everything that happens. And it's no longer about just what's right or good. It's about my unique take. My unique take. And that's not exclusive to one way of thinking. Everybody does it in their own way. But you see it more at the fringes politically. And it's what a lot of these academics are doing for sure. Where it's like my unique perspective. My contribution to the field. But that leads someone down such a a deep pathological rabbit hole that they're worried about how skeletons feel about the way the living talk about them. You know, maybe they don't want to be unearthed. Like if we're thinking about how that person feels, maybe you should leave their bones where you found them and cover them up. Maybe you shouldn't put them in a laboratory. Maybe you shouldn't put them on display. Maybe you shouldn't measure them and study them. Maybe you should leave the bones in the earth where they belong. You know, if if a soul had feelings, maybe that's what it would feel. It wouldn't worry about whether you assumed its gender or not. The soul's saying, hey, why don't you leave my bones where you found them? That's what I'd be saying. That's what my soul's saying right now. Leave my bones where you found them. Don't mess around. Don't, don't think about my bones. Don't even think about them. That's what I'd be saying. Because if you're going to think about them, and this is and this is the way you think about them, I, put me back in the earth. 
put my bones back in the earth if you're going to think about them like this. It's weird. I wouldn't have wanted you to think about me too much in life as it is. And beside, you can see exactly what I am. Besides all that, you can see exactly what I am just from my height, my bone density. There's no mysteries about what I was. That's the funny part. It's just like we're, we're just masking what we already know. And somebody's going to have to recreate it. Like, I look forward to, to living vicariously through that person. Like, there's going to be somebody in 30 years, or I, I don't know who even knows how time's going to work. I, don't, I, I forgot how it worked right now. Um, there's going to be somebody at some point in the future who rediscovers an idea that we took for granted but destroyed. And they're going to feel like a million bucks when they come up with that idea. They're going to be like, I found my unique jewel. And a bunch of people are like, oh, did you see this guy? He found this jewel. It's real this time. This guy found this real jewel. What are you going to name it? And he gives it some name. But we're all looking down from heaven and we're like, ah, I know that jewel. He's, he's recreating or rediscovering something we already knew, but it got covered. It got buried in all this freaking nonsense. And so it's nice that some guy gets to feel like he found something new. He's reinventing the wheel. Because a lot of these things that we destroy, you know, they prove their necessity after they're gone. And they prove their necessity by being obvious. <laughs> You know, if something's a necessity, it's obvious to you. And things prove their necessity that way. These ideas prove their necessity by becoming obvious when they're missing. And so that's what's happening now. Like this deconstruction of everything and this creation of like shitty Frankenstein ideas that we're being told is the real reality. That, that we've been that we've been trying to hide, <laughs> you know, that we've that we've been trying to <laughs> cover up. Like we've been covering up the real reality and they have it. They're the ones who know what reality is. But uh you know, like like uh what was I gonna say? Uh I don't know, just uh You know, you deconstruct this stuff and you, you create Frankenstein ideas that you claim are the real reality. And then all it's going to take is enough enough of that, enough time. And like somebody's going to rediscover something that we knew. Like, it's, it's like those taco commercials. There's this, I don't even know if they're on anymore, but a few years ago there were those taco commercials where the little kid... I don't even remember what he says, but uh, there's a little kid and it's like they're having trouble making tacos and he's like, why not make the bottom flat? And then the next scene is them hoisting the kid up and they're having like a parade for him because he's like this little genius. He, this little kid thought of the obvious thing that nobody had thought of. It's kind of like that where it's like somebody's going to be like, it turns out there are fundamental differences between these two types of humans. This is like eight, this is like a hundred years from now, 
We're just buried in this shit. This shit has just been burying us for a century. And some guy, some scientist is going to be like, I'm starting to notice that there, there's fundamental biological differences between these two types of people. And there's also psychological differences. And their bone density is different. And they respond differently to different types of medical treatment. I think they're different. They're similar. And interestingly, you need one of each to reproduce the species, to reproduce our species. I think that there's some, there's a distinction here. Like some guy's going to think that and people are going to be like, I can't believe it. That's amazing. They're going to hoist him up and it's just like, we're all going to be looking down from heaven like, you can have it. You can have it, man. You deserve it. But I mean, the Bible itself says there's nothing new under the sun. That was one one of the first things I learned reading the Bible is I was like, holy shit, this, it says this in the Bible. There was nothing new under the sun by the time the Bible published. There's nothing new under the sun. That must have meant that they were saying that forever. Like people must have been reiterating that for so long. Who knows how far that back that idea goes? Like who knows? <laughs> like people were probably saying that from day one. It's probably one of the first sentences somebody ever said. Nothing new. Because that probably was pre-verbal. Like, that was probably part of pre-verbal knowledge. Here we, we're getting into pre-verbal knowledge. But it probably was. Like, that, that was probably known before we had the words to express it. That we recreate things and rediscover things and nothing is truly new. It's basically reinterpretations of fundamental realities that we get away from and then come back to. And when we come back to them, they feel new to us. Of course they do. But uh, so it's probably that, 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 that wisdom probably was some sort of pre-verbal knowledge we had. Because once again, you don't even need words to, to see these things. Like you don't need words to know the difference between a man's skeleton and a woman's skeleton. You don't need a slur to feel the way you do about a certain type of person. You don't need a specific word for the feeling, the sentiment, the knowledge, or whatever it is you have. And so we have to go back to that. Like, what is something that you know, but you don't even need to think the words to know it? Because we're so attached to that. Like we're so attached to the, the fact that certain words correspond to certain objects or ideas. But think about the objects and ideas where you don't even need the word to know what it is. It's, it's like a, an intuitive piece of kitchen equipment. It's like, it's like a, an intuitive um, kitchen tool. Like when my mom died, like going through her kitchen stuff, you find these weird kitchen utensils and you're like, what is this for? Like, is this an egg slicer? But then you look up egg slicers on the internet and you don't see a single egg slicer that looks like this. You find some weird spoon. I found this big serving spoon and it was like designed to look like, like an oyster or something and it was old. And then like half of it was like a jagged saw, like half the spoon, not like a, a grapefruit spoon where it's like a, a serrated point at the tip for digging. This was like one side of the spoon was a normal serving spoon and the other half was like a jagged saw. 
I think I finally figured it out. There was it was either like a macaroni server or an oyster server. I think it was an oyster server because that's what it, it was. That's what it looked like. But it was fucking weird. I'm like, what is this for? It's not intuitive. Like I couldn't think of the food that you would need both a serving spoon and like a jagged saw edge for a big spoon too. But there are some things you would find in the kitchen, and like you don't need to know the name of it, and you don't need to have its description. It doesn't need to be explained to you in a word. Like if somebody, if you were eating and you had never used a spoon before and somebody handed you a spoon, you would immediately know how to use it. If somebody hands you a knife, you immediately know what to do with it. Probably even like a cheese grater. You could probably figure out, maybe, I don't know, a cheese grater is getting, it's getting a little weird. But there's a lot of things like that in the kitchen that you just be like, oh, I, I can figure out what this is for. The necessity of this is obvious. The necessity of a spoon is obvious. And so apply that to everything. The necessity of something should be pretty obvious. The necessity of sleeping under a blanket, obvious. If you, you're cold, oh, obviously putting this thing on me is obvious. So it's just, uh, if, if it's not obvious, well, that doesn't mean it's not necessary or it's not important or anything, but it just, it probably isn't as important. It's probably not as important if it's not obvious. And uh, I'm going to close out here. I don't want to stay up all night. And a lot of these ideas being pushed now aren't obvious. And people are claiming they're necessary. Like this person trying to say that we shouldn't assign genders to skeletons because we don't know how that person felt. That's not an obvious idea. That's not an obvious thought. That's not a necessary thought. And really it's quite spiritual in a twisted way. Where like they're thinking about how that person would have felt, which kind of gives them an afterlife, like an afterlife in thought, if nothing else. But uh, they're not here anymore. And even if you're like me and you believe in some sort of afterlife or soul going somewhere, I don't believe those in the afterlife or wherever that essence goes... I don't believe they're even aware of, let alone concerned with those things. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be wrong. If I, if in the afterlife, a soul approaches me and says, Hey, I heard what you said about my skeleton. Hey, I heard what you said about my skeleton. I heard you said that souls don't care whether you, whether you classify a skeleton as a male or female. Well, I beg to differ. I heard what you said. You know, I'm happy to deal with that confrontation when the time comes. But I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that's not a matter of importance. It's not a necessity to them. And so the fact that we would make that a necessity, a human being out there, especially a credentialed human being, a credentialed human being, Somebody who's supposed to be smart because of the studies they do. 
because of the world that they've trapped themselves in. They, and it makes you smarter and smarter because you, you're never humbled. You just get, the longer you're in academia, it turns out, you just get smarter and smarter. A credentialed human being thinks this is important. They think, they think it's necessary. Well, it's not obvious to me. A lot of things are. And we get so attached to the words. We get so attached to the, these abstractions, these representations of these things, that we forget the thing that makes something necessary is something we can perceive even without those words. It's like a baby who knows it wants food, but it doesn't have the words for it. I mean, you can learn a lot about what I'm saying from looking at a baby. While a baby can only do so much, it communicates what it needs. And what it needs is obvious. It needs to have its diaper changed. It needs to eat. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be loved. Turns out the skeletons need the same thing. But no, like what a baby needs is obvious and the baby doesn't have words for it. And you wouldn't even need words to take care of those needs for the baby. So think of yourself as a baby. Think of everybody as a baby. Think of everything as a baby. Think of the world as a baby. And be like, well, the things that are totally necessary will be communicated very clearly and obviously because it's necessity that makes something obvious. And if it's not obvious, it's not that it's not necessary, but it might be less necessary. And there's good reason to believe it's probably not necessary at all. So we're in the age of the unnecessary. And I think the more we distance ourselves, the more we crawl out of our rabbit holes, the more we distance ourselves from these, represent, these representations of things and think about things as they are, I think the more we'll come to understand what's necessary and what's not. And stop fighting over it, because <laughs> you know, that's the funniest thing of all. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.